Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Elizabeth Tippett, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Oregon. We'll be discussing her article, Enslaved Agents, Business Transactions Negotiated by Slaves in the Antebellum South. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Liz, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Liz, I wondered if we could maybe start the conversation by getting some context, some introduction to this paper. You're focused on the historical practice of enslaved workers serving as business agents to slaveholders. Could you introduce this paper and what motivated you to write on this topic? I actually stumbled upon this really interesting pocket of case law while I was researching a book on the history of employment law. And in the book, I'm trying to tell the story of employment law in a way that doesn't erase slavery from our history. And in the course of writing that book, I went back to look at the law of agency, which has been so important in employment law. And I found this fascinating pocket of cases where enslaved people served as business agents on behalf of the slaveholder, which was not something that I had really expected beyond some research I had done by reading a book on the history of Black business people by Juliet Walker. And she talked a little bit about some of these workers. And so I really want to delve into the case law to see if I can find out more about these individual workers and whether there were other cases. And in fact, turned out there were A number of cases, less than 50, but a number of cases where we could see a little bit into some of the roles these enslaved workers were playing in business transactions in the antebellum South. You found this set of case law and that related to the law of agency and also with slavery, looking at the state of agency law in the United States in the 17th through the 19th centuries up to emancipation. How did that law conflict with the legal foundations of a race-based chattel slavery institution? I think it depends on how you think about what slavery was. There are a number of historians right now, in addition to Juliet Walker, but also Caitlin Rosenthal and Edward Baptiste, who are looking at slavery from the perspective of capitalism and the economic systems of slavery and how it fit into the rest of the United States and the world economy. And if you think about the capitalist dimension of slavery, agency law was perfectly compatible with that. Because one of the things we know generally about agency law is it allows business people to delegate acts to people that work for them so they don't have to do it themselves. And so agency law was very conducive to the economic interests of slaveholders because it meant they could delegate work to enslaved people and not have to pay wage labor for the same work or not have to do it themselves. And so slaveholders really liked agency law. And in fact, a lot of the cases involving whether an enslaved person could serve as an agent involved slaveholders saying, yes, this enslaved worker qualifies as my agent and I want to be able to enforce transactions that this enslaved person negotiated on my behalf. The practice of enslaved agency was at odds, as you note in the paper, with larger ideologies of white supremacy and chattel slavery. How did white slaveholders and transacting parties, or courts for that matter, address this inconsistency? Did they even recognize it as such? And how did those economic interests that you reference come into play? 
some of the ideology of slavery was one of white supremacy, for starters, and also of racial dominance. There was this narrative that enslaved people were dependent on the slaveholder, when in fact, the opposite was true. So all the slaveholders were very dependent on the enslaved workers to do all of their work for them and to generate economic value for them. But the narrative was that enslaved people were dependent. And of course, in these cases where you see enslaved people undertaking important business transactions and doing really economically valuable work, it was pretty obvious that these enslaved workers had a pretty fair amount of responsibility. And so I think slaveholders prioritize their economic interests above ideological concerns. I think courts, uh, the Southern courts tend to actually be very ambivalent about recognizing the role that enslaved people play in these transactions. And so even though they wanted to align with what the slaveholders were asking, and they often did recognize enslaved people as agents, they often included various racist language, I think, to reconcile and minimize the ideological meaning of the court ruling and what they were doing. I'd like to delve in a little bit to the case law and the case history that you looked at for this paper. You examined four categories of cases that involved enslaved agents. One was enslaved managers who ran slaveholders' businesses. Another was enslaved intermediaries who transacted business with third parties. A third is a set of cases involving uh, liquor sales sting operations. And then a fourth is complex hiring and self-hiring arrangements. First, how can these cases be used as legal history? What are their limitations as historical sources? And second, will you give an overview of this case research and what it teaches about the history of slavery and its intersection with the law of agency? I should make the disclaimer that I'm not a historian. And so I rely heavily on the theory and the research of other historians in terms of understanding the role that these texts could play in thinking about what was happening at that time. You know, we'd never really hear from the enslaved worker themselves. So we don't really know what story they would tell about their role in these transactions and how they feel about transacting business on behalf of the slaveholder. All we hear about it is through the litigants who were typically the slaveholder and then a third party business person, also a white person who may have also been a slaveholder. And then we hear it from the court and the courts generally were quite aligned with the interests of the planter class. So what we know about these workers, we have to filter through this very biased lens of these white people who were fighting over the significance of contracts where an enslaved person was essentially party to the transaction on behalf of a slaveholder. The earliest case I found was a case from 1798, which involved an enslaved man who served as a captain of a boat that ran aground. And so there was a later dispute about who owned the boat. And the question of who owned the boat was related to who was the captain of the ship. It turns out that everybody who was on the ship acknowledged this elderly enslaved man as the captain of the ship. So in 1798, the Southern Court at that point said, well, everybody agrees that this person was in fact the captain. And it's not that uncommon, actually, for ships to be captained by enslaved people. So even though it doesn't really align with the rest of the law of slavery, we have to acknowledge the fact that enslaved people serve in this role. And then as a result, they declare that the slaveholder was the owner of the ship. That was the earliest case I found. And there were other cases as well involving enslaved ship captains. There were other cases where enslaved people served as intermediaries. They would be purchasing or delivering goods, but they may also have been bartering over the price of the good. We don't really know. It's hard to tell from the cases themselves. But it seems that at least in some cases, the slaveholder was absent when the transaction took place. 
And so it's not unreasonable to assume that the enslaved person was somehow involved in determinations of price, for example, and quality and quantity. There were also these strange cases involving liquor sales operations. In the South, many states prohibited selling liquor to enslaved people. And in other cases, they also prohibited engaging in any kind of transactions with an enslaved person on their own behalf. But of course, in a context where it's not uncommon to send an enslaved person out to purchase liquor on behalf of an overseer, on behalf of the slaveholder, courts had to try and distinguish between bona fide agency-based transactions where the enslaved person was doing so on behalf of someone else or buying it on their own behalf. But of course, if you're trying to set up a sting operation, an enslaved person is always doing it on behalf of someone else. And so these strange cases revealed the hypocrisy of these laws prohibiting transactions with enslaved people because almost all of them were actually authorized by someone else. But courts would sometimes say, well, we have to pretend like this wasn't an authorized transaction if we want to ever enforce these ridiculous prohibitions on sales. And my favorite case involving complex transaction involved a sting operation against a, a shopkeeper named Francis Anon. And the sting operation involved an officious intermeddler who wanted to do a sting on Francis. And so he sent an enslaved person to sell some corn in Francis Anon's shop. And he did so, and they stole the corn. The complicated thing, though, was that the clerk of Francis Anon's shop was also a slave. So this was a transaction that involved two enslaved people. But the court essentially had to try and pin the transaction on Francis Anon himself, the slaveholder, when in fact, the store clerk Polydor, who had done everything. And so in order to actually prosecute Francis Anon, they had to recognize Polydor's expansive authority to engage in all sorts of transactions and recognize that Polydor actually had full authority to run the shop in order to prosecute Anon himself for having purchased corn from this enslaved person. So you start to realize how very dependent these slaveholders were on enslaved people to transact business for them, even as they prohibited these transactions officially on the books. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the paper? Are there open questions that this research created that you want to look into in the future? For me, the thing that was most impactful about reading these cases was the ways in which they were truly revealed the economic exploitation of slavery. Separate and apart from the violent dimension of slavery, the separation of families, the sexual abuse of slavery, there was the economic exploitation. And this was, I think, especially visible when we're talking about these highly skilled enslaved workers who were conducting all of this business. And the economics of slavery was particularly revealed in cases that involved self-hiring arrangements. So a self-hiring arrangement was when an enslaved person would actually pay the slaveholder for the use of their own time. And this was especially true for enslaved entrepreneurs who wanted to start their own business. If their services were already really valuable in the market, but they knew that by running their own business, they could actually make even more money, they would enter into an arrangement with the slaveholder to buy their own time for a limited period of time. And then usually that arrangement allowed them to keep some of the proceeds for themselves, which they might save up to purchase their own freedom or the freedom of family members self-hiring really just made transparent the underlying economics of slavery. So even if you weren't paying the slaveholder for your own time, it was the same as if you were working for them because it was a transfer of money from the enslaved worker to the enslaved person. And these self-hiring arrangements just made that underlying economic transfer from enslaved workers to slaveholders the more apparent. 
And of course, these workers would end up paying the slaveholder many times over because when they were essentially paying rent on themselves, it didn't really count towards their purchase price. So if they were a really successful business person and they managed to save up enough money to afford their purchase price, which would inevitably be at a premium because the slaveholder would charge them a premium for for their own self-purchase, they might spend years and years and years saving up money to do so. That's another just massive transfer of wealth from an enslaved person to the slaveholder. And so it makes transparent the respect in which slavery was a transfer of a lifetime of earnings from enslaved people to slaveholders. And that money really has never been paid back. Our guest today has been Elizabeth Tippett, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Oregon. We've discussed her article, Enslaved Agents, Business Transactions Negotiated by Slaves in the Antebellum South, and I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Liz, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.